Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to all of you. This is the Oxford Mindfulness Center's monthly keynote session. This is a one hour session with a guest speaker, Dr. Sarah King, who I will introduce in a minute. The session will include some practices along with a very interesting presentation. I need to mention that Dr. King's talk will include some visuals. So um, normally we turn these talks into podcasts. And so if you are listening to this at some later time, maybe in your car where you're just listening, it would be good for you to know that there are visuals that are an integral part of this talk. And it might be that you would enjoy it even more if you would look at the YouTube version, which you can find on the OMC's YouTube channel. And that way you'll be able to see the visuals and that will really enhance things. So um, now I'm gonna introduce our speaker who is Dr. Sarah King. She has background and experience in a really wide range of fields. She is a neuroscientist, also a political and learning scientist an education philosopher, social entrepreneur, public speaker, and a certified yoga and mindfulness meditation instructor. She specializes in the study of the relationship between mindfulness, arts, complementary and alternative medicine, community health, and social justice. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in neurology at the Oregon Health Sciences University, also a Garrison Institute fellow and a Society for Neuroscience associate, and a member of Google's well-being think tank, which is called Vitality Lab, and also the founder of Mind Heart Consulting, a scientific consulting firm where she offers up a program called the Science of Social Justice. It's a framework and also the systems-based awareness map, both of which explore the capacity to heal intergenerational trauma and promote the well-being of collective nervous systems. Some of this work is in partnership with the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And I think we're gonna be hearing more about that this evening. The title of the presentation is The Impact of Art on the Neurobiology of Stress, an Awareness-Based Approach to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. So welcome, Sarah, and over to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bear. That um, was a very uh, kind introduction, and I, I'm very grateful and appreciative uh, to be a part of your community on this beautiful uh, evening here in the UK. Uh, so I'm going to go on ahead and uh, firstly share my PowerPoint presentation, and uh, fingers crossed that that's <laughs> going to work out for me right now. Let's see. All right, can I get a little thumbs up if people can see this? Excellent, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm going to go into full presentation mode, everyone, in this moment. Uh, so that's gonna mean that I'm not gonna be able to see uh, any comments that are in the chat, um, uh, but hopefully there will be enough time at the very end of this experience where um, perhaps there might be time uh, to take a couple of questions um, from the chat. Uh, so Dr. Bayer has graciously introduced everyone uh, to the title of my presentation, uh, which I really appreciate. And my lab advisor at OHSU has uh, admonished me for not mentioning uh, that uh, my postdoctoral fellowship is funded by the National Institute of Health in the United States. He says that's very important to mention. And so I'm mentioning that here uh, at the very beginning of our time together. All right. So I'm going to give a little uh, overview of what you're going to be finding within this uh, presentation. We're going to start out today with a very brief uh, practice that combines both mindfulness and art. 
Um, and I'm going to do my best to be a little bit more descriptive of the images that you'll be finding on the screen here today uh, in the event that there are any individuals who um, I'd like to acknowledge that may have any kind of vision impairment. I'll offer up a brief introduction to how mindfulness can be defined, both from the, the perspective of my personal practice as a mindfulness practitioner, uh, and as well from the scientific literature. And I'm gonna discuss just a little bit how the way that mindfulness has been defined is also related to um, the way that trauma has been defined in the science literature. I'll be giving a brief overview of the potential physiological benefits of mindfulness. And I put a little quotation marks around the word potential because um, as always, whenever discussing uh, whether any kind of mind-body practice has any particular kind of benefits, um, it's important to have a little bit of discussion about um, you know, how, how it is that these benefits are not necessarily distributed equally amongst all populations. And I'll get into, into a little bit of why that is. I'll also discuss how it is that I theorize that both stress and chronic pain are related to our identity, our experience of identity as well as the body's trauma response, as the trauma response arises from the function of our autonomic nervous system. I will then continue uh, by giving a brief uh, uh, definition of intergenerational trauma. I really wanted to emphasize the uh, brevity of these definitions because each of these topics is uh, incredibly uh, uh, lengthy and can stand as a course uh, all on its own. I'll then be giving a brief literature review on the history of the clinical uses of art therapy in neuroscience research, uh, looking at the impact of both making and viewing art on our health outcomes. I'll then give a brief overview of what I have developed in my uh, postdoctoral research that's called the systems-based awareness map. This is a map of the relationship between internal and external awareness. And it is this same map that I'm going to be de debuting in partnership uh, with the Museum of Modern Art in New York through a program called Art and Awareness as a Catalyst for Collective Healing. And that'll be happening in early 2022. And then it is my great hope that we will be able to experience a brief sample of the kind of mindfulness and art practice that I'll be launching uh, in partnership with the museum at the very end of our program here today. And so with that, I would love to invite you all wherever you are, whether you are sitting or standing, to uh, take a moment and adjust yourselves so that you can perhaps feel as though your body is being really supported in your chair. This is the moment of our program where I'm going to open up with just like a brief grounding practice. <clears throat> and for those of you who are not able to actually see what's happening on the screen, I have a visual of some really light and beautiful fog and mist that is just rolling over these gorgeous hills that are covered with dark green pine trees. And I have this image here on the screen because sometimes um, there are various people who um, find it more easy, more accessible to look at an image that is calming rather than to close their eyes during a mindfulness practice. For those of you who would prefer to close your eyes, I'd like to 
uh, open up an invitation to do so now. Um, if you don't feel comfortable closing your eyes and you also don't feel comfortable looking at the image on the screen, there's always the option to use what's called a soft gaze. Um, so a soft gaze is just sort of lowering the eyelids and looking a couple of inches in front of the knees or the feet or whatever part of your body is meeting with the earth. I'd love to uh, take this opportunity to take a few deep breaths with one another. Uh, if that sounds compassionate and accessible to you right now. And as you're taking those deep breaths in and out, you may notice whether or not there is an immediate impact on the body by elongating the breath, Noticing the place in your body where you are meeting with the earth. Maybe sending the breath down to the very bottom of the feet to touch the earth. And then sending your inhale breath up and out of the very top of the head is a visualization I like to employ. And when you're finished with those deep breaths, you can just take a moment here, either gazing at the beautiful image of the fog on the screen, and noticing how your body maybe responds to that image. And if you're not looking at the image on the screen, simply noticing how the body responds to tuning your awareness towards your breath as it goes in and out of your nostrils. Perhaps noticing the quality of the energy that you have brought with you into the space today, no matter what that quality of energy is, doing your very best to compassionately invite it into your awareness. Noticing if there's any particular places in the body that may be feeling a little tense or tight. And if it feels compassionate, see if you can send some breath to those areas of the body that are experiencing tightness. Noticing the quality of the temperature of the air in the room on your skin. And seeing if you are able to open up towards a sense of relaxation for just a moment. Sometimes I even like to visualize that there are tree roots that are extending down from the body into the earth, anchoring me more firmly into the ground below. And whenever you are ready at your own pace, taking one more deep breath,
And the invitation is to begin to very slowly open up the eyes without staring. And maybe begin to slowly turn the head and the neck a little bit and look at the room that you're in or wherever you're at, slowly turning the head and the neck to orient to the space where you are and see if you notice anything slightly different about the room that you're in. Maybe a difference in the vibrancy of the colors that you see or even the quality of sound in the room around you. Just taking a moment to look around and gradually acclimate back to the screen that's in front of you. Thank you so much everyone for sharing a brief practice with me today. Uh, and in this moment, I will continue to launch into my presentation. I hope none of you find that to be uh, too jarring of a transition. I wanted to start out my conversation today um, with a little uh, conversation on what I have noticed from my personal practice of mindfulness are some, not all of, but some of what I consider to be the primary components um, that are involved in the practice of embodied awareness. Noticing that, that I'm saying embodied awareness rather than mindfulness, right? Because we have the capacity to really anchor ourselves consciously within an experience of being aware. And that experience of being aware is coming from the fact of our embodiment, the fact that our awareness is stemming from the reality that we have these amazing bodies with which to perceive the world around us. So at any moment in time, we might be able to tune consciously to our capacity to be aware, um, to direct our attention, um, to breathe consciously rather than unconsciously, to concentrate on our surroundings, either our external surroundings or to concentrate on what it is that we perceive or that we feel is happening um, on a sensate level inside of our bodies. We can always make slight mindful adjustments to our posture or the alignment of our skeleton and our muscles in a way that can be supportive of the cultivation of embodied awareness. We as humans have the power to direct our curiosity, right? Um, to really engage with presence with our environment around us. We can notice when we're having um, negative self-talk and we can practice directing compassion towards ourselves as well as others in our practice of cultivating embodied awareness on a daily basis. And we can also bring our capacity to notice that which is present to recognize that which is present within our surroundings or inside of our embodied experience or that which is absent from our experience. And we can use all of this within the context of relationality, right? Developing a mindful relationality with what is happening inside of us, developing an intentionality to be aware of uh, the passage of what is happening inside of our awareness and the way that that is related to what it is that we are fundamentally transmitting into the world in terms of our external awareness. And all of these, I think, are um, very practical ways that we can engage 
in uh, cultivating a sense of mindfulness in our daily lives, even when we may not necessarily have the opportunity for a more seated or formal practice, right? And some of us actually find the seated and formal practice to be a little bit uh, difficult. And so I really like to start out my presentations with a reminder that a mindfulness practice or just cultivating embodied awareness doesn't necessarily need to happen in a formal way on a daily basis in order to ground ourselves within the complexity of the reality of our lives. Uh, here on the left-hand side of this um, uh, slide is a picture of myself with uh, the man who is often credited or spoken of as being maybe the father or the grandfather of mindfulness in the United States. It's myself with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn. And I have noticed that his definition of mindfulness uh, gets used very often within the uh, scientific uh, literature that discusses mindfulness. I thought I would throw it up here today. And the definition that is typically used of his is that mindfulness is commonly defined as the awareness that emerges by way of paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience moment by moment. And one of the things that I really like to uh, point out in sort of a, uh, in a quasi-joking way is that I haven't actually met anybody um, who is able to pay attention to uh, the thoughts that are going through their minds on a daily basis without a hint of judgment. And so, I, you know, just a little bit of calm here, unless you are the Buddha, then you're probably actually going to be experiencing quite a bit of judgment about the thoughts and experiences that you're having on a daily basis. And that's okay. Um, I think that it's more like when we are bringing our attention to those judgmental thoughts and maybe countering those judgmental thoughts with a spirit of self-compassion that we can really begin to ground within a moment-by-moment -moment mindfulness practice. But I also really love the work of David Trelevin. Dr. David Trelevin is a psychotherapist located in the United States, and he's written a wonderful book called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, Practices for Safe and Transformative Healing. And he makes a very important linkage between mindfulness and trauma when he states that mindfulness, when practiced with discernment, can increase one's capacity to integrate trauma right? And it does this, mindfulness does this by enhancing our capacity for self-regulation or the ability to control our emotions, thoughts, and behavior, right? One thing that I like to say is that um, a mindfulness practice is not necessarily going to guarantee us that we are going to be able to uh, regulate our emotions or have control um, over our emotions, thoughts, and behavior, um, at all times, right? It's not formulaic, right, that. But I think that this definition is really more hinting that human beings have this capacity, right? This capacity is, is an option for us with uh, bringing mindfulness into the way in which we are moving through our worlds on a day-to-day -day basis. And the fact that this is even a possibility is something that I find to be incredibly empowering, especially when I think about what it might mean to heal trauma inside of my own body, inside of my community, and to heal trauma that is not just located within the experience of this lifetime, but trauma that is deeply 
intergenerational. And so it is being passed down um, through the lineage of my ancestry. Uh, and so from here, I would like to get into a little bit of the science of mindfulness and what I was talking about in the very beginning of this presentation around the quote unquote potential physiological benefits of mindfulness. And so for those of you who like to uh, get nerdy and look into the scientific literature right, that discusses uh, the impact of mindfulness on the body's biological systems, you may find um, reports that uh, a mindfulness practice can potentially increase the length of our telomeres, which are um, associated with healthy aging processes right on a genetic level. Uh, discussions about the capacity for mindfulness practices to uh, engage in the anti-inflammatory nervous system response. And many of you may know that inflammation um, is uh, a feature of the body's biology that is really undergirding a lot of different diseases, um, particularly neurodegenerative diseases inside of the body. So people get very excited about that, right? They talk about the decrease in cortisol production, cortisol being the uh, stress hormone that is produced by the body, particularly within um, any experience of um, anxiety, right? You might find really sharp increases in the production of this hormone. So people get really excited about that. Uh, they talk about uh, mindfulness improving insomnia or people who really have a difficult time with not only falling asleep, but staying asleep at night, the capacity to lower and or stabilize our blood pressure, um, to potentially increase our hippocampal volume. So the hippocampus is an area of the brain, uh, which is often associated with our, our memory, specifically our, our working and long-term memory. And then sometimes you may also find discussions about mindfulness modulating the HPA axis. This is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenocortical response, which is a very long-winded way of also referring to um, the body's stress response, which is particularly important when we are talking about individuals who experience chronic stress throughout their lives. And part of the reason why um, all of these findings are incredibly important is because everything that you see here on the screen, everything that I have discussed um, really contributes in a way to the expression of trauma in a lot of different populations. And it contributes to the expression of uh, intergenerational trauma um, that is being passed down from ancestor to ancestor, which is something that I'll get into a little bit later on in this presentation. But one of the things that I really want to uh, mention is that within the popular media, right, sometimes they'll get a hold of these studies and there will be, um, you know, uh, such a big to do around, oh, you know, uh, if we practice mindfulness, then we are guaranteed to have these uh, in incredibly uh, powerful physiological benefits that we will experience inside of our bodies. And Oftentimes um, within the media, there isn't necessarily an awareness that most of the individuals who have been studied in the context of mindfulness interventions are incredibly homogenous. And so what this means is that a lot of these studies are happening um, at colleges and universities um, in mostly, um, uh, I would say like Western settings. 
And so there really is a huge gap in terms of the populations of who are being studied in the context of mindfulness science, right? We need a lot more studies that are involving individuals who come from underrepresented backgrounds, who come from backgrounds with uh, less education, who come from backgrounds that are experiencing um, either um, you know, forced displacement or um, other experiences uh, that would potentially be lending to trauma, the expression of trauma inside of their nervous systems. If we're really going to be able to understand what the impact is of these practices, and also very importantly, whether mindfulness practices are actually not necessarily appropriate for all populations who have experienced some sort of trauma. And so that's something that I really think that it is important to point out is that mindfulness is, it's not like a, it's not like a magic pill, it's not a silver bullet, and it shouldn't necessarily be thought of as something that can be prescribed in order to get these physiological benefits. So in the work that I do in the world, whether I'm within a university setting or working uh, in the nonprofit sector or in philanthropy, or even within very large corporate settings, the primary motivators that most people um, say to me in terms of why it is that they want to begin a mindfulness practice is that there is an experience <clears throat> of stress, chronic stress, which is incredibly prevalent throughout the global population. And that this chronic stress is also linked to the experience of chronic pain, physical chronic pain in the body, right? So when we're talking about the manifestation of stress, stress is an experience that is deeply emotional and biological, right? It is psychological. And so it has a really deep impact upon um, our mental health, right? And our capacity to uh, uh, live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis with a certain kind of quality of life. But I think it's very important to understand that there is a really um, deep linkage between the experience of chronic stress throughout the lifetime and chronic and physical pain throughout the body, um, which some of you may be familiar within the United States, <clears throat> the conversation about the opioid uh, crisis and the manner in which pain medication um, was really severely over prescribed to a lot of different populations who developed a dependence on it. But I think it's really important to kind of um, bring, in the bring in the context that the reason why these pain medications were being uh, prescribed on such a, a wide and rampant, rampant basis is partially because of uh, the manner in which chronic stress truly is an epidemic. Um, just speaking uh, in a United States context, but I think that you could potentially extrapolate that to lots of global populations as well. And so here is where, if you are listening in on the uh, podcast version of this, it might be uh, helpful to actually tune into the visuals here. Uh, one of the things that I like to uh, discuss when looking at a visual that is describing the phenomenon of allostatic load. So allostatic load, meaning the wear and tear of maintaining a functioning system in response to stress, right? And this is to say that there are the normal stressors of life, 
But many of us, particularly within this pandemic of COVID-19, have really been experiencing what it feels like uh, to, to live a life uh, where you are having to respond to an environment of chronic and pervasive stress on a day-to-day -day basis. And allostatic load is so very important to understand because there's actually a wear and tear, a cost to the body to return to homeostasis, right? Homeostasis is the process by which our bodily systems are able to maintain themselves in balance and in equilibrium, right? And so when we're experiencing chronic stress, there's actually a wear and tear to the nervous system. And if we zoom into the very center of this chart, we see the brain and it says perceived stress. This is something that I think is incredibly important. Stress doesn't necessarily have to be coming um, from our environment in any way that is very uh, obvious in terms of some sort of impending catastrophe or some sort of um, trauma that is extremely obvious. Stress can be happening on the level of our perception, the way that we perceive ourselves to be located in our environments in potentially socially stressful situations, right? And so it doesn't necessarily, you can see where it says major life events over perceived stress. Stress can come from major life events that are potentially stressful, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. And if you look at the left-hand side of this chart where it says environmental stressors, right? stressors that are coming from our work, from our home, and from our neighborhood. One of the things I like to talk about is that depending on the kind of identity that you have, you are going to be experiencing environmental stressors in a very different way. Depending on your gender, your racial background, your class, your culture, your religion, there are so many different ways in which we can discuss our identity. But identity is something that it is very important for us to realize is really intersecting with our experience of how it is that we perceive what stresses us out. And then if you go down uh, again here on the left-hand side of the chart where it says individual differences, right? identity in combination with our environmental stressors is going to really impact how it is that we are perceiving stress and that is going to have an impact on the very expression of our genes, the development of our genetic code, the ways in which we are actually experiencing what uh, chronic stress means to us in the world. And then if you go over to the right-hand side of the chart where it says behavioral responses, right? We're talking about the function of the autonomic nervous system right now that is really responsible for when you go into fight or flight or freeze or faint, right? The experience of environmental stressors in combination with the way that we perceive our identity is really going to have a huge impact on our health behaviors, right? our diet, whether we are smoking, how much we are drinking, and our exercise, right? All of these wrapped up inside of what could be called our physiological responses to our allostatic load. All of this is a way of saying that when we are looking at mindfulness practices and their capacity to potentially do something about a healing intergenerational trauma, we have to understand that the manifestation of trauma in and of itself and intergenerational trauma 
is going to be very different on the basis of your identity, both how you identify on the inside and the way in which the world tells you that you ought to identify is all going to have an impact ultimately on the manifestation of your experience of allostatic load. And so here I want to go into uh, very briefly the way in which intergenerational trauma has been defined within the literature. This quote is actually coming from a, a manuscript of mine that I'm getting ready to publish um, that talks about, that discusses the science of social justice as a theoretical framework. And so the quote is that intergenerational trauma has interestingly been studied most extensively in the literature of psychology, which surveys Aboriginal or indigenous populations around the world who have suffered from the effects of the violence of colonization, right? And when you hear these key words like Aboriginal or indigenous, right, what we're talking about right now is identity. These studies have identified intergenerational trauma as stemming from the collective experiences of trauma, right? Trauma can be experienced individually or collectively. The collective memories of centuries of chronic stress and the resultant biological shifts in stress hormones, such as cortisol, which have been passed down from generation to generation, literally altering the biochemistry of the womb and gene expression and leading to the, and I will say potential, manifestation of psychological pathologies such as anxiety, depression, PTSD, and substance abuse, right? And so it's very important to point out um, for those of you who are really interested in wrapping your minds around this concept of what trauma is as it stems from our experience of um, the function of the autonomic nervous system, our autonomic nervous systems are never expressing a trauma that is solely belonging to us. All of the trauma that we are experiencing or expressing inside of our bodies is deeply intergenerational, meaning it has been passed down from ancestor to ancestor to ancestor. And so I, it's really my hope to um, inspire those of you who are involved in the research community um, and especially the research around trauma to have this intergenerational lens to understanding how it is that the body's stress response is really shaped by our ancestors. So I wanna go here into a very brief literature review on art therapy and clinical settings. I might have to go through this a little bit quickly because I'm looking at the time and I wanna make sure that I can talk about my study with the museum and leave a little moment for practice at the very end. Uh, but I took a look, I did a little bit of a literature review that's just discussing the impact of art therapy within clinical settings. And I was amazed to see that art therapy has been used for cancer symptom control, specifically the manifestation of pain. It has been used successfully um, to uh, treat depression and anxiety uh, for early and advanced rheumatoid arthritis treatment in the treatment of chronic pain, schizophrenia, PTSD and complex trauma, which is really amazing. And when you look at all of these studies together, um, some of the incredible results that they discuss are that participants um, who are uh, experiencing, right, this chronic pain inside of their bodies report increases in positive mood, decreases in physical and existential pain, 
increased acceptance, increased adaptation, increased resilience, an adjustment to the limitation, loss, stigma, and isolation that can come with the experience of chronic disease, increases in their capacity for meaning making, and reductions in the hyperarousal that is often associated um, with chronic stress. And all of this is happening from both the making and the viewing of art. And I find that to be completely fascinating because what we're talking about here is literally art as medicine. Uh, so I had to ask myself, right, what way can I really make the benefits, the supposed potential benefits of mindfulness practices more accessible to a wider group of people, particularly for those who maybe find the mindfulness practices not necessarily that accessible? I had to ask myself, why might viewing abstract or figurative art potentially be a pathway to receiving the same kinds of benefits that I discussed earlier on in this presentation. And I have just a couple of examples that I'll get into here, given the time. Uh, this is one of my favorite books, Science, Order and Creativity by David Baum and David Peet. And uh, this quote is that any discussion of awareness, right? We're talking about awareness and mindfulness practices must bring in the question of attention, which is closely related. Indeed, the two words are to some extent interchangeable insofar as awareness can mean heedfulness, which also signifies attentiveness. Therefore, there is an important difference of connotation between these two words. Thus, the word attention means literally stretching the mind towards something. And this implies an inner activity that is needed to grasp the object of interest. Part of the reason why I find this quote to be so amazing is because it really applies that when we are looking at art, right? How is it that art can potentially be medicine? That it is not that we are just like passively receiving whatever it is that we see when we are in the presence of art. No, there is an active stretching of the mind towards that art and an integration of what it is that we see in front of us within our embodied experience. Another book that has been very helpful for me on my journey of research is Reductionism in Art and Brain Science uh, by the giant in neuroscience, Dr. Eric Kandel. He says that the reason we can usually resolve the ambiguity of a retinal image, right, an image that is coming through the retina of our eyes accurately, is because our brain supplies context consisting of other bits of information. Those that are present in the retinal image, such as face processing, and those that are inherent in the computational machinery of the brain. And finally, those learned from prior experience with the world, including the world of art. So this is to say, in, a, in essence, that when we are viewing a work of art, right, and we are in this um, active, agentive space of really integrating the art into our embodied experience, that we are never just seeing the art as it is. There is a layer of the way that we experience art that is informed always by our previous lived experience. We project ourselves and our lived experience and our identity into the viewing of a work of art. 
And then very lastly, um, from the book Aesthetics and Neuroscience, I really love this quote. One hypothesis is that our experience of art is embodied. It is embodied through our spatial motor system. Our body will truly interact with artworks. Information does not come to us. We have to actively look for it and bring the objects of interest at the center of our retina. The phenomenological experience of looking for information in real life is entirely different from the experience of being still and receiving information. So that is to say that when you're just sort of like uh, passively receiving images and color from around you, that engages the systems of the body and the brain very different than when we are in the act of being agentive and seeking out art. It is uh, a response from the body that is engaging our spatial motor system such to the point that we will find ourselves actually moving and shifting our body and our awareness in accordance with the art that we view. And I hope to be able to give you all a little bit of an experience of that a little later on in this presentation very shortly. Um, I'm actually going to have to skip over this one part. Uh, this was um, a slide where I was um, wanting to discuss, to discuss a little bit how it is that I uh, became involved with the Museum of Modern Art as my collaborator. So really quickly on the very left-hand side of the page is a photo of the incredible artist Betty Saar. Uh, in the very middle of the screen, you can see her work of art. It is called Black Girl's Window. So one day the Museum of Modern Art, they reached out to me and they said that they had been following my work with the science of social justice. They were very interested in giving me the opportunity to pick out one work of art from their collection and to record a meditation that would introduce people to my scientific framework as well as it would invite people into an experience of that particular work of art. So if you're in New York City, you can actually go to the Museum of Modern Art right now. And when you stand in front of this work of art, you can put on your headphones and you can listen to the actual meditation as you can see on the right hand side of the screen. I took a little bit of a picture there. I went to go uh, visit the museum to start my uh, focus groups with them there. And I took a picture of myself next to that work of art because I was so excited to actually see the meditation live inside of the museum. That was uh, quite the moment for me to experience. And so after that initial collaboration, we developed a program that was called the Art and Science of Hope and Justice. Again, uh, this was featured at the Museum of Modern Art. And I developed this program with my collaborator uh, and longtime mentor, Dr. Dan Siegel, uh, and my other colleague, Orlando Villarraga. Very proud to say that this event was sponsored by the World Health Organization and the United, State, the United Nations for their 50th anniversary celebration. Uh, so if you go to the United Nations website and you look up their 50th anniversary celebration, I believe you can still get um, an access to a recording of this event. But essentially, we took eight different works of art from the Museum of Modern Arts collection. And Orlando, as you can see in this photo, is playing this amazing instrument that is made out of clay um, that he learned to develop during his time learning with the indigenous Tejuna tribe uh, in Colombia. And so Orlando uh, composed this amazing soundscape that was designed to engage participants in an experience of viewing the art mindfully, as well as uh, Dr. Siegel and myself sort of 
overlaid that experience with a conversation around what the neurobiology of hope and justice is about. And so that experience became the uh, groundwork for the program that I'm going to be launching in February, um, which I think I will get to right here. So the program that I will be launching in February at the Museum of Modern Art is an exploration of the systems-based awareness map that I have developed in the context of my postdoctoral fellowship. This map is a map of the relationship between our experience of internal and external awareness. And I just wanna take a moment to say that I know that this map is incredibly complex and it's a lot to take in uh, just all at once. Usually I, I give like a 45 to 60 minute lecture on this whenever it is that I'm breaking it down. But I really wanted to make sure that I brought it into this presentation because it is literally a piece of art that I have created in order to describe um, in some capacity the relationship between our ability to tune into pure awareness and the way in which that then gets really deeply connected with our experience of internal awareness or memories, emotions, feelings, sensations, and thoughts, our experience of our awareness of our identity, our experience of our body and uh, either its vitality or disease, the way in which that gets connected to our awareness of ourself as agents within the world capable of behavior, speech, relationship, agency, and movement. And the way that that is then uh, deeply connected to our awareness of ourselves as a part of a collective self, right? Within the environment, society, and culture. And so if you get the opportunity to come to the event in February, um, we will be uh, going on an experience where I will select works of art that are meant to describe and offer up some sort of experience of each layer of the map, along with a soundscape that my colleague Orlando Villarraga will be creating to uh, take us on this journey. And so with that, I wanted to shift just for a moment into an example of some of the artwork that could potentially be used within this program in uh, February 2022. And so here's where we shift back into our practice of where mindfulness can potentially meet art. And so instead of closing the eyes in this moment, this is a work of art called Palm of Love, also from the artist Betty Saar. Let's experiment and see what it might be like to take three deep breaths wherever you are. And as you take those deep breaths, notice how the color and the interplay of texture and anything else that you witness on this page begins to flood into the mind's eye and into your awareness. Notice if there is <clears throat> any area of the body that begins to shift or move or respond in some capacity to this work of art.
it may be that you notice there are certain areas of the body that relax and open up or other areas of the body where there could be excitement or even tension. Noticing if there's anything about your experience of this painting that brings to mind a certain memory, certain thoughts. that reminds you of the experience of well-being or the opposite. Maybe your body is inspired to move and stretch a little bit as you're looking at this painting. Noticing what is present as well as what is absent. And we'll just take a moment and experience this painting in silence. Some of you may even want to close your eyes here and allow your awareness to process with the eyes closed. The predominant colors of this painting being red and yellow, black and white. Is there something that these particular colors have to communicate to you about your experience of your own identity or your life? Taking another deep breath in here that feels compassionate and opening the eyes if you wish, I'm going to transition now to a different painting. And before I transition, the invitation here is to really bring your awareness, your attention to what shifts in your conscious experience upon the viewing of this next painting. This is an abstract painting by Sam Gilliam called Watercolor Number Four. Noticing the difference between how the colors in this painting meet with your awareness as opposed to the other. Maybe taking a couple of deep breaths in here, if that allows the body to process what's in front of you more deeply. And the opportunity or the invitation here is to close the eyes if you wish, only if you wish, 
or to keep the eyes open. But see what your capacity is to actually invite the color and the texture of this painting into your embodied awareness. Where does it land inside of the body? Are there any stories that arise in response to this painting? A bit of tingling. Maybe there are areas of the body that even feel numb. whatever sensations may be arising. See if you can offer up as much compassion as possible to your sensate experience of witnessing this painting. How does this painting in fact live inside of you? We'll take a moment in silence to experience this. The invitation is to take one more deep breath here if that feels compassionate. And if the eyes are closed, you can begin to gently open up the eyelids at your own pace. And it may be interesting to notice if you experience this painting differently after opening the eyes up there are any areas of the painting that jump out to you like an invitation or a memory. And we can take a moment right now and maybe begin to move the body a little bit, however you feel inspired, maybe rolling the head and the neck around the shoulders and looking at the room around you and noticing the difference, if there's any, between the way that the room looks or feels to you now, as opposed to the way that the room looked or felt prior to engaging with this art and awareness practice. Just noticing. There may be even a slight different quality to the sound in the room around you. We can begin to gently tune into that as well. <clears throat> so 
So I wanted to uh, start to wrap up this presentation by coming back to some of the ideas that I introduced in the very beginning about our capacity to bring our embodied awareness to the experience of the way in which everything that is happening inside of us can be seen as the unfolding of art in as much as everything that we see in the world around us is an extension of the art that gets created inside of ourselves. So I really wanted to take the time to just note that I think that the exploration of the idea of art as medicine is something that I find to be incredibly empowering myself personally, and that it is my hope um, to see a lot more of our uh, museums being used as spaces that can be utilized in a public health and educational capacity. And that's the end of my presentation for today. I'll stop my share. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was really fascinating and I think quite a different exploration of mindfulness than we have experienced previously on these keynotes. So we're very grateful to you for introducing us to some new ideas, new things to think about. Thank you so really much for having me. Um, unfortunately, we do not have time to try to deal with any questions from those who are here today, but uh, we will be putting the link for um, Sarah's website into the chat and you may find some information there. I think Sharon has put it into the chat just now and you can check there for information about Sarah's work and also that uh, museum project, which looks so fascinating. So again, thank you so much Sarah for being with us and to everyone else who is here, just a reminder that tomorrow we will resume our nightly um, mindfulness practice sessions for 30 minutes at seven o'clock. So hope to see some of you there then.